Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When we come together as the church, as we've done this morning, and when we sing together in worship, we do nothing less than commune with the mystery of the Trinity. That's pretty much all I have to say this morning. But let me reinforce it in the following way. As the Soviet Union was in the process of breaking up more than several decades ago now, citizens of the three Baltic republics of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia held massive rallies in favor of independence from the dying superpower. These were entirely peaceful. With no shouting of slogans, what participants did instead was to sing together in their tens of thousands in huge public squares. They sang the songs their mothers sang to them in the cradle, the songs they grew up singing while working and playing. And it can truthfully be said that the Baltic peoples sang their way to freedom. Song. Song is powerful, as the civil rights activist Mary King noted when she said, the outpouring of freedom songs went to the core of the struggle and expressed as nothing else was able, the hope, the belief, the desire, passion, dreams, and anguish of the conflict. Singing one's way to freedom. What an odd notion. And yet, if this is true on a local level, in local struggles, could it also be true on a cosmic level? If it's true that song can bring freedom to the Baltic region, might it be true for all of creation? And what would this song sound like? And who would be singing it? In 1877, one of my favorite poets, Gerard Manley Hopkins, who was a priest, wrote the following poem. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire-cold chestnut falls, finches' wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim, all things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. This poem is a hymn of creation calling us to praise God by glorying in the created world. It expresses the theological position that the great variety of dappled or spotted things in the natural world is a testimony to the perfect unity of the triune God and to the infinitude of his creative power and that humans can and ought to respond with praise to the God who lifted his voice in song and spoke creation, singing it into existence. Praise is the highest and most fundamental posture to the life of believers and of humans more generally. We will praise something. The question is, what are we praising? To what are we ascribing worth? And throughout history, praise has taken on the form 
so often of song, singing. Because of this truth, the psalmist beckons like Hopkins to God's people to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, writing, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Elsewhere, the psalmist will say, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. You see, the injunction of the psalmist of all things is to worship and sing. And you see this throughout the Psalms when the experience of the psalmist is running the full range of human emotions. And yet so often, the proper response singing. But it must be said that there are moments, valleys in our lives, where the last thing we want to do is commune together and sing, and we're not alone. One of the most heartbreaking passages in all of Scripture describes not a song of joy, but a song of lament. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept as we remembered Zion, or the way things used to be. On the willows there, we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song when things seem like they've come off the rails? It's hard to sing songs when our life is not as it should be, but part of the call of the would-be Christian is to learn that the heart of the disciple is formed between a mountain and a valley, between a valley of God's seeming absence, where all we can do is hang up our harps and a mountain of God's presence. We're singing with all the saints and angels and archangels and the seraphim we've heard about from Isaiah with the prophet We cry together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the glory that Hopkins recognized, even on a trout. We must learn the devastation of our lives will be pulled forward into the light of the truth of another prophet, Zephaniah, who says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love He will exult over you with loud singing. And so God sends his son into the world to sing a love song over us as we hear from the gospel of John, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, our singing is not like one hand clapping, but instead we are assured that our song of worship will be met with God's song of love. God's song of love quiets our troubled souls, not with guilt, but with his uncompromising, unmerited, and embracing love in Christ. Like Isaiah, we may see our incredible need in the presence of the God who is holy, but the God who is holy invites us into sharing in his love song over creation, even to being sent out to share in it and to share it with others. Here am I, send me. So could it be that the best way to reinvigorate our social and political culture might start with turning off our private iPhones, pulling out our earbuds, and joining our voices together in song? 
That is exactly what I am suggesting. If the pandemic has revealed anything to us, and it has revealed much, I hope it has given us a new appreciation for the power and the glory of what we do as we gather here together as the church and when we gather together in worship. When we do this, we commune with the mystery of the Trinity. And so it is fitting that today, of all days, we sing. We sing once again. We welcome back our choir. Thanks be to God. You see, in song, we begin to grasp the nature of the Trinity, not as an abstraction, but as a dynamic, living reality who speaks to our present situation with the hope of our future. Nobody understood this better than St. Augustine, who spoke of that great hope, our future, the city of God, the new heavens and the new earth, in the following way, writing, oh, what a happy alleluia there, how carefree, how safe from all opposition, where nobody will be an enemy, where no one will ever cease to be a friend. God's praises sung there, sung here by the anxious, there by the carefree, here by those who will die, there by those who will live forever, here in hope, there in reality, here on our journey, there in our homeland. So now, my brethren, let us sing not to delight our leisure, but to ease our toil, he says. If you didn't already know, today is Trinity Sunday, the day we remember not that God is revealed to us through the Trinity, but that God's very nature is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Communion and community are at the heart of the Trinity, and this is the God in whose image we are made. And so it makes sense then, doesn't it, that the isolation of the last 15 months or so make us feel disconnected and less human. But when we commune, when we sing, we enter into the heart of the Trinity, the source of all life. We live as we were designed to live, drawn up into the eternal love song that is the Trinity. In other words, we were designed for worship and relationship, and we will feel less human in our bones even to the degree that we deprive ourselves of these two things. So there is a, a Duke theologian named Dr. Jeremy Begbie that says that we have so often possessed confusion around the nature of the Trinity because we use spatial analogies to describe the doctrine of the Trinity, to describe a personal reality. And these never quite work, a triangle, a three-leaf clover. Somehow they emphasize the threeness at the expense of the oneness or the other way around. But Begbie asks, this great theologian, what if we were to think of the three persons and the one God in terms of notes of music? You see, musical notes can fill the same space without losing their distinctiveness, but spatial items cannot. So if you color you know, red and yellow on the same page, you can't mix them without them losing their distinctiveness. It creates something altogether new, the color orange. But musical notes can inhabit the same space, remaining as they are, but still complementing one another. So a three-note chord, he says, is the best analogy for the dynamic nature of the Trinity. Three notes inhabiting the same space. 
and complementing one another without losing their distinctiveness. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God.